My name is Marga Weiss. I teach at uh, Wesleyan, and I'm a cultural anthropologist. I do uh, feminist and queer anthropology. Um, and it is a treat to be moderating this panel today um, on feminist ethnography. I'm going to do a brief introduction to the panel and then each of the panelists. Um, each presenter will have about 15 minutes to present um, her comments, and then we should have plenty of time at the end for discussion. So our panel takes its inspiration from a paper jointly written by Orit Lynn and Jennifer Randalls, who unfortunately could not be with us today, entitled Reconciling Progressive Research Agendas with Fieldwork Realities, The Feminist Ethnographer's Dilemma. That phrase, which we've taken for the title of this panel, comes from the sociologist Judith Stacy's 1988 essay, Can There Be a Feminist Ethnography? In this essay, Stacy traces a number of what she calls contradictions in the project of feminist ethnography, chief among them a tension central to fieldwork between being a participant and being an observer, or in brief, between occupying a shared and equal relation to others and occupying a detached and superior one. For Stacy, this objectifying or even exploitative relationship between the object of study and the researcher cannot be effaced, even when both are women or both share the same national or cultural location. She writes, even an exhaustive, mutually beneficial exchange cannot resolve the feminist ethnographer's dilemma. The late 1980s was a moment of crisis for feminist ethnography. What had started as a project to study women had morphed into a much more complex task of analyzing gender in the context of post-structuralist critiques of knowledge and knowledge production, post-colonial theory, and analysis of feminists of color. In anthropology, the discipline that I know best, this historical moment provoked crises we have yet to resolve, indeed crises that are perhaps best left unresolved, crises of representation, form, and genre, crises of subjects and objects, crises of incommensurate epistemologies. It is this last that our panelists will focus on today. But before we zoom to the present, I want to linger in the 1980s just a little bit longer with the British social anthropologist Marilyn Strathern, whose 1987 essay, An Awkward Relationship, The Case of Feminism and Anthropology, is a classic in my own field. In the essay, she argues that in spite of anthropology's relative receptivity to feminism, the two projects are fundamentally different, not opposed, but rather existing, as she puts it, in different worlds. This is due, Strathern argues, to the different disciplinary practices institutionalized in feminism and in anthropology. Feminism, she argues, takes women's liberation from the other of patriarchy as its main objective, striving for autonomous female selves. Anthropology attempts to use the ethnographer as a bridge between self and other, striving for a dialogical construction of difference, typically non-Western cultural difference. And so, Strathern writes, for all their parallel interests, the two practices are differently structured in the way they organize knowledge and draw boundaries, in short, in terms of the social relations that define their scholarly communities. This emphasis on disciplines as assemblages of practices, on the knowledge-making structures and mechanisms of the academy and its internal processes of verification, evaluation, and testing is one key aspect of the dilemma before us today. So too are the contested relationships between method and theory, subjects and objects, and self and other 
at the heart of the ethnographic endeavor, anxious, ambivalent, or awkward as it may be. For the feminist ethnographer's dilemma is not a narrow or discipline-specific question. It is a question of what constitutes feminism. Our first panelist is Orit Avishai. Orit is an assistant professor of sociology at Fordham University and is working on a book based on her dissertation research called Politics of Purity. It is ethnographic work among Orthodox Jewish women in Israel about their experiences with Jewish menstrual practices. She will be sharing some of the feminist dilemmas that arose in this field site with us today in her talk entitled, A Secular Feminist Sociologist Faces Her Demons, What My Study of Orthodox Jewish Women Taught Me About Feminism. Our next presenter is Lynn Gerber, a scholar in residence at the Beatrice Bain Research Group and a research fellow at the Religion, Politics, and Globalization Program at UC Berkeley. Lynn's forthcoming book, Seeking the Straight and Narrow, Weight Loss and Sexual Reorientation in Evangelical America, is a comparative study of Christian weight loss programs and ex-gay ministries. Her fieldwork with the ex-gay movement, specifically with ministries affiliated with Exodus International, is the basis for her talk today, which is entitled Gender Hegemony or Gender Innovation in the Ex-Gay Movement. <laughs> so each panel will have about 15 minutes to present their comments, which should give us plenty of time for audience discussion. Okay. Thank you. So over the past two days, we've been talking about collaborations between the academy and activists uh, and how there are shared in common feminist goals. And I think that while all of us on this panel support and strive for the scholar-activist ideal, we're going to complicate that idea. Um, and I think that there's this assumption among feminists and other progressive academics um, that scholarly and activist pursuits are always neatly aligned. And um, based on our experiences as feminist ethnographers, we have found, um, as others have uh, noted before us, um, but we really, that's become kind of the, the, the focus of our uh, attention to highlight that, um, that the scholar, feminist, activist model um, is a little more tenuous. The origins of the panel are in conversations that I had with Lynn and Jennifer Randalls, who's um, uh, another co-author on the paper that um, Margaret referred to. Uh, so conversations that we've had over the years that, uh, about the difficulties that we each encountered in our respective um, field sites as feminist ethnographers. Um, so just briefly, Jennifer studied state-sponsored marriage promotion and education programs. Lynn, as you've heard, studied ex-gay ministries. Um, and I studied Orthodox Jewish women's experiences with Jewish laws of um, menstrual purity. Now, our case studies uh, couldn't be more sort of different analytically, conceptually, ge geographically. But what we found they all shared was um, a study of what we've come to call conservative social spaces. So these are practices, institutions, social arrangements that feminism um, by definition deems as misogynist and or anti-feminist. And Tay actually is going to complicate that because she studied um, what some could call feminist social space. Is that correct? Well, I'll, I'll let, yeah, I will. Let, but she's going to complicate that even further. So I'm very excited that she's come into our conversation too. Now we all just just to lay out our feminist credentials. Okay, so Lynn, Jennifer, and I we came to our project as sort of card-carrying feminists. We were trained at a, a Berkeley sort of feminist-friendly institution by feminist uh, um, uh, mentors. We had taken classes on feminist uh, methods, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, yet we realized that there were some uh, substantial difficulties that we encountered in the field as feminist ethnographers. Um, and the issue was that our feminist politics often clashed with our empirical findings. So I'll tell you a little bit about my case and then expand that to some of the um, broader implications. So I studied, I spent several years studying Orthodox Jews in Israel, and I was interested in discourses surrounding marriage and sexuality. And the focus of my study became um, around how Orthodox Jewish women make sense of a set of laws that is known as Jewish menstrual laws or nida, or the laws of family purity. Um, these are originally, the, the, the origin of these laws are in the, in the Bible, um, and I was, and of course they've been interpreted and reinterpreted and expanded uh, and elaborated by rabbis, obviously male rabbis, uh, throughout Jewish history. So how did they make sense of these laws? How did they adapt them? How did they negotiate with them? How did they make sense of them in sort of 21st uh, century uh, realities? Um, these laws are very little known outside Orthodox Judaism. You probably know about Jewish dietary laws. You know about the Sabbath. These laws for Orthodox Jewish um, people are on par with um, dietary laws and the Sabbath. Um, and they basically organize marital sexuality for Orthodox Jews. Um, the laws prescribes, prescribe a highly detailed and ritualized set of practices that dictate how women dress, uh, monitor, and monitor their bodies, and how they interact with their spouses throughout the menstrual cycle. Um, in ancient times, menstrual impurity was one of several impurities that regulated access to um, the temple. Okay, if you were, for some reason, ritually impure, you could not access the temple. Um, temple is long gone, um, and these laws have come to take new meaning um, in, in the sense that they regulate um, marital sexuality. Um, and women are literally considered impure uh, and therefore sexually inaccessible, okay? So impure and therefore sexually inaccessible for roughly two weeks of every menstrual cycle. Now, per my training as a feminist sociologist, as well as my own background as a secular Israeli Jewish woman, the practices I was studying embodied everything that rendered Orthodox Judaism as a patriarchal uh, religion. Um, and it's actually this very designation that drew me to this study um, in the first place, right? It's one of those paradigmatic gendered practices that revolved around and seemed to perpetuate patterns of inequality. But when I approached the practices from the perspective of the women I studied and from the perspective of the culture I had entered, um, these laws and practices took on different meaning. So one of those meanings was that Jewish women made sense of their identity through the very act of organizing marital sexuality around the laws of menstruation. Adher adhering to these set of laws amounted to them for sort of doing orthodoxy. That's how they, one, one major way of indicating their orthodoxy. Um, and this hinged on drawing a contrast, a very clear contrast between orthodox sexuality and secular sexuality. So orthodox sexuality hinged on um, pattern of sexual accessibility and then restraint and secular sexuality in the orthodox imagination hinges on constant um, and you know, ongoing gratification. And of course, that's not buttressed by uh, research on how much sex married people actually have, but that's a different story, right? <laughs> the real issue is about accessibility and being um, a subject who controls one's desires. Another meaning um, hinged on how one understands the term menstrual impurity. 
uh, which sounded to my feminist ears as the ultimate denigration of women, sounded to my interviewees, um, certainly not all of them, but to, to many of them, as a simple des designation of status that has many iterations um, in uh, Jewish tradition. So impurity is not necessarily a pejorative category. So in other words, it turns out that what looks like a paradigmatic oppressive technology of power that sustains patriarchal, heterosexist, and sex-negative social order did not quite capture the breadth of experiences and significance of this ritual and legal realm. So my data begged the ethnographer in me to arrive at this conclusion. The feminist in me kind of balked. Okay, you know, women who menstruate are impure, and I'm supposed to go with that. Now, none of this may sound to you as earth-shattering, right? Good, this is what good ethnography does. We uncover multiplicity of meanings. Um, the point, however, um, and this is the, the, that these tensions that I've just uh, re, uh, discussed, and Lynn will discuss them further with the other case studies, amount to a dilemma that I think that is endemic to feminist ethnography more generally. Our feminist politics and the empirical realities that we uncover are often incongruent. And this leads me to a second insight that we came to. Um, the feminist ethnographer's dilemma is rooted in feminism's very successes in, in, as an intellectual and political endeavor. So feminism, as it is institutionalized by academics and by activists, has produced a set of orthodoxies that are embedded in the theoretical and conceptual frameworks um, that are available to us as interpreters of the social world. And what we mean by this notion of orthodoxy is that you know, we've produced a feminist canon, an expectation to maintain that to maintain their feminist credentials, feminist researchers should interpret their cases in accordance with prominent feminist theories. So in my case, um, feminist orthodoxy vis-a-vis uh, -vis women's experiences with conser conservative religions, and this is predominantly in the, within the sociology of religion, boils down to what I've now called sort of a paradox approach. And study after study, um, there's a sort of a point of departure from the notion that women's involvement, women consent to uh, being involved in conservative religion somehow requires an explanation, begs explanation. And then from there, the interpreter can take two, um, two routes. One is to deem women's experiences as oppressive, right? Um, and could be false consciousness, um, or they could just be oppressed. Um, or the other route is you, these women can be redeemed, right? So we find an alternative explanation to why they do what they do. So maybe we're finding um, that there is really some sense of empowerment. Uh, maybe there is resistance. Maybe they're just being strategic, strategic actors navigating a complex social world. So, you know, think of women donning the veil to resist westernized regime in Turkey, right? Or as a tool that allows them to step out uh, in, into an otherwise hostile um, public square in Egypt, right? So the veil... Um, it becomes strategic. Um, in my case, menstrual laws um, can be interpreted to empower women. Now they have control over um, mar marital sexuality. They know if they're virtually pure or impure. The husband doesn't really know. Um, yet, like Sabah Mahmoud, who studied the Egyptian piety movement, I found that there was a lot more to these uh, menstrual laws. Um, and the plausible interpretation that emerged for me was that this embrace of the religious practice or you, know, you could call it compliance, had a lot to do with the cultivation of oneself as a pious religious Jew, one who seeks to draw a distance, a constant distance between herself and dominant secular Israeli culture. Um, and Lynn, I think, will we'll elaborate uh, later about similar feminist orthodoxies um, concerning masculinity, um, family, and the welfare state that came up in other ways in our uh, research sites. 
So our, our shared experience has led us to two insights. First, we articulated this notion of the feminist ethnographer's dilemma as a tension that is uh, endemic to feminist researcher, research uh, between once political uh, allegiances and the realities of the field. And second, we articulated this uh, critique of the institutional conditions under which feminist research uh, or feminist knowledge is produced and the ways in it, which it, it, um, it begs to shape our analyses. Um, and I want to elaborate a little bit more about this. Um, so nominally, we're, we're told that good ethnographic practices that are grounded in post-positivist methodologies and epistemologies um, and research that is undertaken by researchers who are well-versed in feminist theories are all that's necessary to produce good feminist analysis, right? So follow the research trail and the story will just emerge. You will be able to generate knowledge, rewrite social theories, and, and promote the sort of feminist goals. But then we have another set of advice, right, that is uh, often subtly undermined by, these, um, by this to vindicate um, our, our research subjects. Um, and feminist scholars uh, will, will often re will recognize these, the, the tension, I think, that we all felt um, to, on the one hand, do justice by our uh, research subjects, and on the other, um, to um, get, get our research through uh, to colleagues who were sometimes um, suspicious or uh, uh, thought that by offering alternative interpretations were undermining some uh, broader uh, feminist cause. So feminist institutions, we suggest, have developed an organizational structure that subtly or sometimes overtly encourages uh, feminist analyses proceed in accordance with orthodox feminist ideas or principles while formally insisting on higher, higher standards of qualitative methods. Um, after decades of hard-fought and fortunately hard-won, um, in many cases, battles for intellectual and political legitimacy, feminist theory has established itself in the academy and feminist research now occupy influential positions in scientific, intellectual, and political networks. Um, and this despite the imminent um, threats to institutions of higher learning that we uh, heard about in a session yesterday. Um, and like other influential scholars, feminist scholars now occupy a relatively privileged standpoint, or I should say some um, feminist scholars occupy such points. Um, so if we take seriously the notion that knowledge is constructed and that gatekeepers have much control over this knowledge, we must take seriously the possibility that these very successes of feminism mean that the system of knowledge has produced its own canon, its own orthodoxies. And while these orthodoxies definitely may advance a political cause, they may limit uh, researchers' abilities to decipher empirical realities. Um, and I want to go back a little bit in time and just kind of, I like your introduction, Margaret, because it uh, um, uh, resonates with what I want to say. And I think that the feminist ethnographer's dilemma is really a product of feminist legacy, feminism's legacies and, and successes, right? So feminist research um, from its origins was intertwined with the legacies of the women's movement and women's activism. The concept, the very concept of feminist social research and a feminist approach to social research, right, those are two different things, emerged in the 1960s in the context of uh, struggles for social justice and in tandem with feminist criticism of how we do research, how we, how, what, what kind of questions we ask, what kind of theories we use, what kind of um, analytical lens we use. Um, and right, the point was to, to, to uncover women's uh, and other disadvantaged groups' in invisibility. 
Um, so feminist research was part of a larger agenda to provide voice, representation, and ultimately power to those whose interests, needs, and perspectives were occluded by traditional gendered norms. So often, right, the same women who were conducting this research were also at the forefront of working towards implementing the changes that the, the, that the truth that they unearthed demanded. This is a lot of what we've heard about in the uh, past two days. Um, however, this intertwined history of feminist research and activism has given rise um, not only to the activist scholar model, but also to, some, to these in inherent tensions that uh, we're talking about. Uh, because at the end of the day, there are some competing allegiances, and they're rooted in this in feminist duality, feminism's duality. Um, on the one hand, feminism is a prescriptive project, right? Loosely defined against uh, around critiques of unjust gendered institutions, practices, and social arrangements. And the prescriptive project instructs us to advance progressive social goals through research. This, impi this imperative equips the feminist ethnographer with a vision, with interpretive strategies, uh, with framework, and with broad political goals um, or mandates to work towards social justice. At the same time, feminism is an analytical project that strives to explain, to explain the social world, to interpret it for others. Um, and as an analytical project with its own set of methodological sensibilities, feminism instructs us to take seriously the words and experiences of our research subjects, right? And this is what Margaret started out uh, with, um, to respect and make audible the perspectives and the worldviews of people uh, whose social positioning often ren renders them less visible, like the Orthodox Jewish women I interviewed. Now, historically, these two imperatives have been seen as um, complementary. So social change, right, the argument goes, is advanced when those without voices are able to shed light on social injustices and to participate in making a difference. Uh, to make inroads into women's second shift, inequalities in the workplace, treatment of victims of rape in the legal system, or the horrific implications of undergrad abortion, to name just a few examples, facts must be unearthed, new voices must be heard, the social world needs to be demystified. But sometimes um, these two imperatives do not align. Um, so what are we to do? Um, must the feminist ethnographer seek to disable the conservative social space under study to justify the research program and research findings? So in my case, um, to make a feminist, not just to make social science or sociological sense, but to make feminist sense of orthodox Jewish women, do I really just have these two options, either declaring them as oppressed uh, women um, or to redeem them by somehow finding that there is an empowering moment um, in their control over marital sexuality? Uh, we think that this is not the case, and we, we suggest an alternative. We think that once we recognize the internal tension, feminist researchers um, must be willing to revisit the scholar-activist model um, and reflect on the institutions within which we conduct research and, our, and, and from which our interpretive frameworks um, uh, grow and uh, upon which we elaborate. So to, so to summarize, the feminist activist scholar model grew out of necessity and has served and still does feminist uh, goals and agendas. But feminism largely developed in the tandem, and the sense among feminist researchers was that researchers, but like doing good social research also contributes to your political agendas and vice versa. Um, and now we kind of say, wait, you know, maybe there is a way to embody and combine. Yeah, we can wear the two hats. I'm the activist and I'm the researcher, but sometimes not at the same moment. Sometimes those don't mesh. 
And the point that we want to make is that that's okay. We think that um, feminism as a political project and as a scholarly endeavor is secure enough now to allow ethnographers such as ourselves to remain card-carrying feminists, even if our work does not always reproduce feminist orthodoxies. And in fact, this might be um, a boon to feminism because if, if, if we have um, this uh, flexibility, we might produce, come up with other ways of, of making meaning of the social world that ultimately do shed light on a, a, a broader understanding of, of, of feminism and how it interacts or arises in the social worlds that we study. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, um, <clears throat> I'm Lynn. And I'm going to talk through um, my case study. And if there's time, I'm going to talk through a little bit of Jennifer Randall's, our third co-author's case study. But Orit's done a great job at sort of raising some of the feminist theoretical questions that informed um, our, our considerations and our questions. And so I'm going to talk a little bit more specifically, um, less about theory and more about specific cases. So I'll start with my own, which is um, the evangelical ex-gay movement. And just to give you a little bit of context about the framework within which I went into the field to study this project, I went into academic life. Well, I started you know, going to college and got a, you know, a finely pedigreed feminist education in women and religion um, <clears throat> and you know, very committed to feminism academically. And then I went into a career in um, activism, in movement activism, specifically in progressive philanthropy and trying to raise money um, for a range of progressive causes, feminist, anti-racist, queer, environmental justice, and other progressive movements. Um, most of my work focused in the United States. And then I decided to return to academia in part because one of my concerns about social movement activism is that there wasn't always enough time to let the questions sit and to understand solutions, that there's such an um, imperative to respond, to respond, to respond, to respond, that I wasn't always convinced that our responses were kind of the best ones because we hadn't really had time or the knowledge to really think it out and try it out and, and really sort of understand something in a deeper level. Um, so I decided to return to academia in part because I felt called to do that kind of more deeper time intensive work. Um, and the project that my case comes from is based on a book that I have forthcoming. It was a project um, comparing uh, evangelical Christian weight loss ministries with uh, ex-gay ministries. And the project, in my mind, was always a deeply political one. It was informed by feminist sensibilities, informed by queer theory, and a commitment to fat liberation, which um, you know has this interesting ambivalent relationship with feminist theory. Um, you know, who's not a fan of ambivalence these days? You know, so everything's a little like yes, but no, and yes, but no, and yes, but no, and so sort of um, triangulating this sort of feminist commitment, queer commitment, and fat commitment, given the way that those overlap and don't overlap, led to a lot of yeah, well. Um, and so, again, so part of what I wanted to do was sort of question or at least interrogate some conventional movement wisdom as well as academic wisdom about how conservative social spaces work um, and how the evangelical world operates and what it actually is doing. So the case. The case is the ex-gay movement, which um, you may or may not know is quite a varied phenomenon. It's quite a mosaic with a lot of different factions and sort of different elements to it. It encompasses both formal and informal practices, um, therapeutic interventions into homosexuality and religious interventions. Um, it involves historically black churches. It involves historically white churches. It involves emerging multiracial congregations. And it integrates churches that vary quite differently in terms of their theological approaches, 
culture and lived religious practice. So already this is a different perspective than I had, which is that the ex-gay movement is a thing that we know what it is and we know we don't like it. Well, it's actually really a very sort of rolling ocean of different contexts, places, and practices. And I found that I actually had to focus on something because you can't just say, I mean, you could just say the XA movement, but not if you didn't want to do your whole dissertation on it, which I didn't. Um, so I decided to focus my work on ministries affiliated with Exodus International, which if you've heard of the XA movement, you might have heard of this organization. It's sort of the, mo the largest, um, <clears throat> most well-organized um, ex-gay organization in the country. And what it is is it's a network of ex-gay ministries. So local ministries all around the country decide to affiliate with Exodus International, and they go through a little pledge process. I am committed to the Bible. I'm committed to this kind of reading of the Bible. I'm committed to changing sexual orientation, yes, I believe it's possible, and then I sign up and I become an Exodus ministry uh, member. It's an, um, it contains about 150 ministries, and what's interesting about this network is that, you know, again, contrary to some images that we might have of what the XA movement does, these, move, these ministries are actually really quite independent from the structure of Exodus International. They have their own board and governance structures. They have their own financial resources. Exodus doesn't fund any of these organizations. They don't get any money from anybody but their members. Um, <clears throat> and they don't have, there's no prescribed curriculum or sort of process of, of heterosexual attainment that there is a, a commitment to that all these ministries have to say, okay, we have gone through the 10 stages of how to become a heterosexual person, and th this is how we do it. Basically, what, what membership in Exodus buys you is the legitimacy of the Exodus network, and, and the biggest benefit to ministries in, in signing up with the network is they are part of their referral network. So um, Exodus has a bit of currency in the evangelical world. It's sort of like the sort of, um, you know, in that world, mainstream face of the ex-gay movement. So people who contact Exodus expect sort of a certain blend between the therapeutic and the religious. These aren't the folks who are, you know, getting slain in the spirit and exercising demons per se. I mean, some of the, their members may have come from that, found it not particularly effective, and thought a more sort of legitimized, sort of middle-class, respectable intervention that combined, combines religion with therapy might be a useful way to go about it. Um, <clears throat> And then just to put their sort of gender philosophy into a really brief nutshell, and it's this is such a brief nutshell, it's kind of scary, but I'll do it anyway because it's some context. The basic idea behind um, therapeutic and religious intervention into homosexuality as it's practiced in Exodus is the idea that people become homosexual, that homosexuality, as they say in one of their slogans, isn't a sex problem, it's a gender problem. And the theory, if I can, you know, use that term, I mean it is a theory, um, it has its limitations, um, <clears throat> is that, say for me for an example, uh, that, that human people are erotically attracted to what they perceive to be their opposite. So if I'm a perfectly functioning woman and I believe myself to be a woman and I feel womanly in all my ways, then I will sort of naturally be attracted to what I perceive to be my opposite, which would be masculine and male and that kind of thing. So according to their thinking, the problem with homosexuality isn't so much that I would sleep with a woman, but that I perceive myself somehow to be masculine in some kind of way. I do not adequately ident identify as a woman. Um, and because I don't adequately identify as a woman and I s perceive myself as sort of masculine somehow, I then become attracted to what I am not. Thus, I am be now become erotically attracted to women because I do not think I, I, I don't identify as one myself and I wish to have that. Um, feminine influence in my life. I wish to be. A, I wish to um, sexually merge with what is the opposite to me. So the basic theory is: the more you can get me to think I'm a woman and to be sort of gender normative, 
you know, once you fix that problem, the the opposite sex attraction problem will sort of be resolved, you know. So intervention is really along the lines of gender, even though we're talking about sexuality. So, you know, as you might imagine, and as you might have seen in popular representation, this is ripe for feminist critique, very legitimate feminist critique. There is a lot one could say about gender politics in the ex-gay movement, um, and it's, it's sort of a fertile experimental ground for gender theory in a lot of different ways, from feminist side of the fence and the queer theory side of the fence. Um, I basically, I did participant observation in the ex-gay movement. I attended public lectures, events, conferences, and the like, and I did 28 in-depth interviews with current Exodus members and seven interviews with former ex-gay members. Um, so most of my um, research was through conversation, although a fair bit of it was through observation, too. So when I went into the field, given how ripe it is for feminist critique and given how easy it is for feminists to sort of think they know, understand what that is without looking into it, I had a certain set of expectations. Like, for example, um, that this would be a bastion of traditional gender roles. Oh, you're trying to, you know, inculcate appropriate femininity and masculinity. I imagine that to be extremely traditional masculinity and femininity, and I am sure that this is the, the place where traditional gender roles are not only sort of um, <clears throat> venerated, they're reproduced. This is, the, this is sort of the last, more one of the last bastions of real traditional gender, um, of real traditional gender um, expression. And I also kind of assumed, and you read this in some feminist analysis of the ex-gay movement, that the, the basic underlying motive is a bunch of ex-gay men who are largely white, um, who are largely Christian, who have been sort of, um, you know, denied their white male birthright by virtue of their sexual orientation, trying to reconsolidate a hegemonic masculinity in order to, you know, take in the spoils of um, masculine power and privilege in American culture. Good theory, interesting idea, um, <clears throat> and certainly an assumption, but, you know, as I came to study the movement more, no, I'm not so sure. And that the movement would be evidently anti-feminist and anti-gay, both culturally and politically. My assumption was, oh, all these people are against feminism and they're against gay rights and they're against gay liberation and that is why they do what they do. Um, so we can assume that they are, that as a feminist, they are not me. You know, they're not me and they're potentially my political adversaries. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So these are, you know, sort of feminist standard knowledge and movement-based standard knowledge about what ex-gay ministries are and what they do. But what I found was really quite a bit more complicated, especially regarding masculinity, which soon became what I was actually quite the most interested in. And so I'm just going to give you three examples of moments that really sort of question my understanding of what kind of masculinity is being promulgated. So sure, these ministries are saying to gay men, in order to be a straight man, you must be more masculine. But what exactly does that mean? Three moments that made me say, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying what these are, but I'm saying they're not what we all think they are here on the progressive side of the fence. So the first was this sort of introduction to the range of legitimized masculinities in the ex-gay movement. <clears throat> this was a workshop called Breaking the Myths of Masculinity. It was led by an ex-gay man and what they call an ever-straight, which is basically a straight man. Um, <clears throat> and they had this conversation together about what masculinity is, what it looks like, its virtues, its strengths, its weaknesses, blah, 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 blah. And so the ever-straight man said, I so they were talking about what they love, the things that they love in this world as men, because they're men. Um, he said, I love ultimate fighting championship. It's human cockfighting on jeeps. I also love love stories. I love chick flicks. I cry at every one. I can't get over them for a couple of days. 
I love the stories that talk about affection and love. I love to write. I love genuine conversation. I hate BSing. I hate walking into the context of guys and talking about nothing important. It's crap, but I did it most of my life. I love to hug. I love affection. I love candles, and my favorite flavor is vanilla bean. <laughs> so I don't want to say anything about this except... This is not hegemonic masculinity, as I understood this. And just to repeat the context, this is a white conservative man who is heterosexual, has never had an attraction to a man of the, a person of the same sex. He is attending an ex-gay conference, what you would think of as a highly degraded space in the evangelical movement. He's going in happy as a clam, um, confessing his love for vanilla bean candles and sharing his and comparing his own masculinity to a gay man who's talking about how much he loves shopping and window treatments, as if this was just a normal expression of evangel that we all kind of understand that this is what the range of traditional masculinity is. And I was like, we do, we all understand that. I didn't understand that, and I you all seem to be okay, and I'm just confused. I don't understand. What's going on? One other example, because my time is running short. This one of the things that, um, in this sort of process, that folks emphasize is homo intimacy, and this is like the cultivation of these really close relationships between men. The idea being, you know, if I am a man and I am insecure in my masculinity, and that's that's why I'm not attracted to women. I'm going to gain my masculinity by being really close friends with men. Okay. So Nicol Joseph Nicolosi, who's one of the leading theorists of this movement writes about this sort of male-male friendship, saying, the only way, this is a quote, the only way a man can absorb masculinity into his identity is through the challenge of non-sexual male friendships. Characterized, this is what male friendships are characterized by, mutuality, intimacy, affirmation, and fellowship. Again, not hegemonic traditional masculinity as I understood it, unless hegemonic masculinity has become to be about intimacy, affirmation, and mutuality between men, in which case I don't recognize the world that I live in, and I just don't understand why all the politics that are happening have been happening. It's a strange, it's a strange masculinity. It's a different masculinity. <clears throat> and I'm just going to conclude with one observation. This is a quote that I love that um, I think we had to cut out of our paper, but I love this. John Stoltenberg, radical feminist John Stoltenberg, wrote an essay on the promise keepers, the evangelical male movement. And in it, he criticizes the National Organization for Women for being so interested in politically opposing the promise keepers that they couldn't see the ways in which the promise keepers was actually informed by feminism, was a vindication of feminism. He writes, there was a serious fallacy in Now's depiction of promise keepers as having a right-wing misogynist agenda. It would actually have been strategically more astute and truer to claim the promise keepers phenomenon as a measure of success. Look, men by the hundreds of thousands are finally fessing up to the rotten behaviors that feminists have been accusing them for for the past few decades. This is a significant victory for feminism, even if the promise keepers don't know it. Instead, in order to keep faith with Now's pro-choice allies on the sexual liberal left, Now engaged in hollow anti-right mudslinging, all the while keeping conspicuously mum about the misogynist agenda being propagated by the sex industry. So this is very interesting. This is one of those situations where, you know, as people with sort of feminist political impulses going into the field, we are human creatures. I'm a human creature who appreciates my solidarity with my people, my feminists, my progressive movements. I wish to identify as one of them. But here I go into a field that is defined for me as one of you know, one of somebody who's opposed to me. And there's something in the process of sort of political strategizing and identifying and sort of the strategies that go on that sort of 
lead to a pull to draw lines where they don't necessarily be, and this can have bad strategic or problematic strategic implications, to not take some of what I've seen in the ex-gay movement as a victory for feminism, something we can claim and something that we can strategize on the basis of, I would argue, is a limitation. Um, and I think that sort of one way to think about this dilemma is to say, well, um, <clears throat> It's just that, 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 um, there's, that in sort of stepping back from uh, feminist analytical commitments while in the field can actually return with some knowledge that's actually of some interesting strategic use for ongoing feminist organizing. Thanks. <laughs>